This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host, Steve Ford, WB8IMY. I'm on the telephone with Eric Knight, KB1EHE, and nearly two years ago, in fact, it was March 2018, in QST Magazine, we published an article about his work with Dr. Gary Arendash, and that was to develop, and I'm going to, Eric, try to get this correct here. It's a mouthful. Transcranial Electromagnetic Treatment, a device. Can we just call it TEMT? Tempt. We call it Tempt. You can skip right to Tempt. Okay. How's that? Okay. And good afternoon. Hi, Steve. How are you doing today? Good, good. It's a fascinating device. God willing, I'll never need to use it on myself. But I wanted to catch up with you and see where we stand now two years hence. Well, we've come up a long way in those couple of years. Uh, last year, we finished the, uh, the first clinical trial with eight Alzheimer's patients. And those results were published uh, last summer in the in August, uh, and we were excited to uh, see that uh, seven of the eight patients had a tremendous effect on them and uh, statistically reversed their cognitive deficiencies by about a year, and that's with uh, two months of uh, treatment using this device. As I understand, Eric, uh, the device itself is a uh, well, it's a piece of headgear. Correct. Yep. Yeah. And think of it as like a like a bathing cap, and okay. inside the bathing cap, if you can picture that smooth bathing cap, and eight uh, little uh, microstrip circular well, so little circular antennas in inside, like little discs that you can barely see. So they're flat and it's uh, kind of conformal. So uh, think of it as a bathing cap with these uh, eight little round emitters. And according to the 2018 QST article, the unit was operating at roughly 900 megahertz. Is that still the case? That's correct. That's, uh, I think we have, was it 915 megahertz right in the middle of the, uh, uh, ISM band and the VHF ISM band. Do you know how it works in terms of how its effect is maintained? Is it breaking up, uh, the protein plaques, for example, that sometimes are associated with Alzheimer's? Well, what the science is saying, and I should uh, back up a bit because I'm not a neuroscientist. Uh, I don't play one on TV. I work with some very talented neuroscientists, and I read about this. And just to give your uh, listeners just a, just a little bit of background, if I may, is that okay? Sure, absolutely. So about uh, a little over 10 years ago, I was flipping through an issue of Popular Science, and I came across a, a magazine article entitled Cell Phone Radiation Reverses Alzheimer's and Boosts Memory in Mice. So I was really intrigued and I saw an interesting picture of uh of uh cages of mice surrounded by an antenna and a some sort of emitter and I read the article and this uh brilliant neuroscientist uh Dr. Gary Arendash had uh was doing some studies at his university, University of South Florida, uh with Alzheimer's uh mice that were bred with Alzheimer's disease and he was finding that the radio waves were were breaking up the beta amyloid plaques and these tau proteins that are inside the brains of Alzheimer's patients or mice bred to have this. And what it was doing was basically untangling these proteins and the mice were getting better, smarter in their mazes. And then when they looked at the the brain's mice afterwards under microscope and such, they could see that the brains were being cleared of these toxic proteins. So I looked at it and I said, that's a fascinating piece. And at the time I had just, I had been working on some work in, in uh, aerospace and designing 
these conformal antennas to go around the uh, an airframe of uh, small rockets with a diameter of about uh, oh ten inches, and it uh, just it just clicked. It's like wow, these conformal antennas that go around uh, a uh, rocket airframe that could be flipped around and potentially used for uh, the same sort of treatment on on people it would match about the same size as a head. So I filed for a patent on it, and five years later I received the patent on this kind of human. Uh, variation of what Dr. Arendash had done. So I contacted him, and he had since left his university and formed his own company to start working on uh, the development of a human treatment device and and similarly was using the antennas that wrapped around a human head. So we kind of both came at it from two different directions independently. And uh, so to make a long story short, we became uh, fast friends, and our two companies we agreed to merge everything we were doing to try and tackle this uh, horrendous disease. So that kind of brings us to these last couple of years where we, uh, NeuroEM, when I say we, we're talking about NeuroEM, my company's Remarkable Technologies that's licensed the technology to NeuroEM. And uh, NeuroEM had uh, conducted this study with uh, eight Alzheimer's patients, and as I mentioned, uh, seven did uh, wonderfully well. And here we are today getting ready for a new study that will happen this year with uh, up to 150 patients to see if we can replicate the study on a much greater basis. When I was reading that article about the results, that was remarkable. That, and, And please correct me if I've got this wrong, Eric, that their cognitive abilities were effectively reset to where they had been a year prior. Is that correct? That's correct. So after two months of treatment, and the, and the treatment protocol is this is, a, again, a wearable device that these uh, patients would use at home, so not in a hospital setting, but at home, wearing it one hour in the morning, one hour in the afternoon. Basically, but while they're sitting there, they could be watching TV or doing their regular chores. Uh, it's a very comfortable device. It's, uh, it doesn't uh, impact their their mobility in any way. And after those two treatments for two months, so uh, add them all together, that's the number of treatments over those period of two months, their cognitive abilities and other metrics were reset by about a year. So uh, you're spot on there, Steve. That's remarkable. And roughly, Eric, how much power would you say we're talking about in terms of the 900 megahertz energy that is being applied transcranially? It's basically what you'd get out of a, a cell phone, because that was what the original studies on mice were. The original studies on mice, mice were 1.6 watts per kilogram of brain mass. And so in these devices, they, these devices are also delivering 1.6 watts per, grill, per kilogram of uh, uh, brain mass, and that's uh, below or right to or below the FCC SAR level. So basically, uh, it's it's like a, a cell phone level of uh, RF. How do you see this proceeding to, uh, to finally getting full FDA approval? Well, this this year's study will will be uh, uh, is the is the biggest milestone for for all of the research. If the um, 150 or so patients uh, replicate the, the performance and that same sort of statistical uh, uh, benefit that was seen with the small group of eight patients, then over the next couple of years, this device could be uh, uh, commercialized and available uh, to the public, uh, probably as a prescription device first, and uh, that's still to be determined and how to get it out into the public. 
uh, we're trying not to, you know, trying to walk before we run here, so to make sure that uh, we're taking all the appropriate steps. But that would be if the uh, upcoming study is replicated on a larger scale, a scale as the smaller study, then um, it wouldn't be too long, hopefully, uh, that it could be available to uh, the public. Just in time for me. Well, for many of us as we're getting older, <laughs> it's such a terrible disease and, uh, many of, many people we all know, and it's, it's a sixth leading, uh, cause of death in the U.S. and around the world. So anything we can do to, uh, to, te- to, uh, make a dent in this terrible disease would be fantastic. I can say as a, as an inventor, what I do for a living, again, I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm an inventor and uh, entrepreneur. And all you can hope for is to have a positive impact on society. And, and really, this is about as important as it gets. It's really the, the proudest moment in my professional life if we, can, if we can get this across the finish line. I can imagine. And I wonder how many people outside of QST readers realized that through your participation and your work, a ham was involved, that, that there is an amateur radio connection to all of this. Oh, that's that's the icing on the cake. That uh, yeah, many people are probably not aware of that. But I, my beloved hobby is a ham radio operator. I've been a ham since 1974. To be able to weave together my love of the hobby, uh, radio transmission, and now medical devices, and bringing that all together, it's uh, it, it's it doesn't get more much more rewarding uh, personally and professionally. If you don't mind, Eric, uh, keep me up to date on how this is going, and I'd like to bring you back, if you can, uh, once this next trial is completed, and see where we stand. Talk about it further. That would be great, and you may also, maybe we can weave in Dr. Aaron Dash. He's really the brilliance behind all of this, uh, and uh, it would be our pleasure to uh, bring everyone, uh, keep everyone posted uh, on this, and uh, everyone just uh, keep rooting for this to succeed. It's, uh, it would be a great, uh, great milestone if we can achieve this. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Eric. My pleasure. Great talking with you, Steve. Have a great day. By about the time you hear this podcast, you should be getting your April issue of QST Magazine. Or if you're a digital reader, you already received it a couple of weeks ago. But anyway... Look at the eclectic technology column, and I don't point this out because I wrote it, but it is an interesting topic, and that is how you can go about listening to the sun on HF, really. The solar activity we're talking about amounts to bursts of noise from the sun, and this is noise that you can pick up right around 20 megahertz, give or take. Now, I'm sure some of you out there are saying, wait a minute, WWV, the time station, operates on 20 megahertz. And you're absolutely right, of course, and it's been there for many, many years. But you don't have to be precisely on 20 megahertz to do this. I've done it, and usually I operate, or I should say I listen, about 10 kilohertz plus or minus. And that usually does the trick. So what are we listening for? Well, we're listening for noise, really. In particular, a burst of noise. Even though we're at the solar minimum, the sun is still very active, and it still burps out these blasts of particles and uh, manifests itself as noise every once in a while. It's pretty fascinating to be able to pick this up. Now, obviously, you need to do it during the daytime, or as my daughter used to say when she was young, well, duh, 
because obviously the sun is on the other side of the planet otherwise. And it does help to do it when the sun is at its highest point in your local sky, which means high noon, right? Do you need a special antenna to monitor these noise bursts? Do you need a special radio? Well, the answer to both questions is no. The HF transceiver that you probably own right now is perfectly suited for the task, as is the antenna. In fact, I know some people who have been dabbling with this, and they're using antennas that are just oh, a few feet off the ground. Because after all, you're not trying to work DX or listen to DX that's coming from over the horizon. What you're interested in is directly above your head, more or less. So, what do you do? Well, you tune to 20 megahertz, or again, plus or minus, whatever you have to do to get out of the way of WWV. And you record this noise from sunrise to sunset. Now, obviously, these noise bursts happen at highly unpredictable times, and they only last about 30 seconds or so, and some can be quite a bit longer, but generally it's about 30 seconds. So having a recording that lasts, say, eight hours, and then sitting down and going back through this recording can be awfully tedious. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. So what do you do? Well, I discovered a piece of software. This happens to be written for Windows, but it's called Radio Skypipe. And if you Google it, it's Radio SKY-Pipe, P-I-P-E. And what it amounts to is a scrolling chart, like the kind that you see that is recording, uh, let's say, earthquakes, for instance. And you feed the audio from your radio to your computer sound card, or if you're using an interface, that works too. And SkyPipe can be configured to monitor this analog audio, render it to data, and display the results on this continuously scrolling chart. And believe me, when you hear or pick up solar noise, it's very easy to identify. Some call it the shark fin profile. In other words, there's a sudden rise of signal, and then it falls off gradually, so it resembles a shark's fin, more or less, a dorsal fin. That's what you want to look for when you're reviewing the chart results later, because that's a solar burst. And radio skypipe not only shows the intensity of the signal, but it also marks the time so you can know what had happened. Nothing particularly difficult about this. The software is out there. It's available. You do have to pay for it. The free version is not nearly as featureful, if you will. I preferred the pay version, which is uh, $49.95, I believe. But it's a lot of fun, and it's science you can conduct on your own in the privacy of your own home. Almost 43 years ago, on August 15, 1977, an extraordinary signal was received by the Big Ear Radio Telescope at Ohio State University. And this signal later became known as the WOW signal. And to this day, it remains the only such signal ever detected, and that includes the so-called fast radio bursts that have been much in the news lately. And what made this signal unique was it appeared to be entirely artificial and was extraterrestrial in nature. And I have on the telephone uh, Dr. 
Bob or Robert, if you will, Dixon, W-8-E-R-D. And is it correct to say that you were actually in charge of the project at that time? Is that right? Yes, that's right. And were you actually the person who wrote WOW next to the uh, the data on the readout? No, I'm not. We had uh, Professor Jerry Eman who was one of our staff members then, and he, his job was to look at the computer printouts every day or every every couple of days. And he looked at that, and he got so excited that he actually wrote, wow, exclamation mark, in the margin of the computer printout. What made it so extraordinary? It was extremely strong, stronger than anything we've ever seen before. And what was so convincing is that now, the radio telescope turns for the Earth, and we scan across whatever we're looking at. And so a point source should look like the antenna pattern as we scan across it. And this matched exactly the antenna pattern of the Big Ear Radio Telescope. And it's just amazing that anything would ever do that. And what's also amazing is we had two beams in the sky at the same time, and it appeared in only one of them. So that means it actually turned off as we were looking at it. And what made it so convincing as coming from an extraterrestrial source, one that is uh, possibly light years away? Well, it had a bandwidth of 10 kilohertz or less, and uh, there's no uh, extraterrestrial things that French put with such a narrow bandwidth. So that's probably the most convincing thing. Was it located in a particular constellation? Uh, I thought I read somewhere Sagittarius, but I'm not sure that's right. Yes, but... You know, it could be anywhere, and there's nothing particularly significant about that. We checked to see, is there any exciting astronomical object in the direction of this thing, and there is not. And how long did it take to go through the process of eliminating any possible, art? I mean, Earth-bound sources, I mean, artificial sources, but Earth-bound or space-bound, for that matter? Well, probably months. We, we continued to observe that position in the sky for a long time after that and never saw it again. We also looked at all known Earth satellites and planets and anything else that could conceivably be there, and we found nothing, so we, there was never any explanation for what else could be there. This signal, was it uh, audible in the sense of if one were listening at the time that the WOW signal was recorded, you would have actually heard something? Or was it such a, a low level that it was recorded strictly as uh, as data? Well, if we had, say, a, a, a ham receiver there listening to it, you might have said something interesting. Uh, I don't know. Because all we recorded was the signal strength. We have no way of looking at the modulation at the time. Ah, that's what I was getting at. Yes. So nobody actually heard the signal itself. That's right. Actually, sometime later, we uh, increased the intelligence of our radio system and actually did attach a communications receiver to the radio telescope. And if it found anything strong, it would turn on the communications receiver and record whatever the receiver heard. But that never happened. Well, that brings up a good point. Uh, The wow signal never repeated. Is that correct? That's right. It did not. We and other people have looked at that place in the sky and never found it again. In your opinion, based on everything that you saw at the time and what you've known since, uh, how do you feel about the possibility that it was truly uh, an artificial signal, potentially from a, an alien civilization? Well, we can never prove that, but we have we can't disprove it because we've checked everything else out that we know about. So all we can say is that it's a very good possibility, but we can't ever say definitely. Well, it's absolutely fascinating, uh, and a lot of people uh, don't know the story behind the wow signal. 
which is why I was intrigued to learn that uh, there is a documentary presently available, and it is called Wow Signal. I know it's on Fandango now, and I believe it's also going to be available on Amazon. Is that accurate? That's right. It'll be on Amazon and on Google Play and various other uh, pre-recorded places. Are you featured in the documentary? Yes, I am. I am one of the um, primary players. Could you also describe the nature of the so-called Big Ear Radio Telescope? What sort of uh, telescope was that? It was the size of three football fields and uh, sitting on the ground. There was about three acres of flat aluminum ground plane. At one end of that was a parabolic reflector that was about 300 feet long and 100 feet high, and that did not move. At the other end, there was a flat reflector and again, about, say, two or 300 feet wide and 100 feet high, and that moved up and down. So that was what tilted the beam of the telescope up and down in the sky. And so that's the only way we could steer it, and not only very slowly, in the other direction, left and right, we just relied on the motion of the Earth to detect the signals. Where was the telescope physically located? It was located just south of Delaware, Ohio. Okay, so not right on the campus of Ohio State University in Columbus. Oh, no, far away from that. It was out in the country. I could imagine the dealing uh, with noise, even being out in the country, had to have been a challenge. Well, that's always the challenge for radio astronomy, but we were fortunate by being out in the country. And this kind of telescope is also less susceptible because it's down low on the ground and there's nothing up in the sky, high up like a dish, say. I thought I had read somewhere that the Big Ear Radio Telescope had been dismantled. Is that true? Yes, it was destroyed. It's no longer there. Oh, that's a pity. Yes, it certainly is. It was uh, unfortunate. The uh, Ohio Wesleyan University, who owned the land under the telescope, sold it to a housing developer, and they wanted to build houses there, so they tore it down. Were there other amateurs besides yourself also involved in the project? Yes, many. Dr. Krauss, who was in charge of the telescope, he preferred to hire hands. And so there are several others, as well as myself, that were there. Oh, okay. And that would seem natural at the time, wouldn't it? Yeah. He, he wanted people that had practical knowledge of electronics, and so he liked to hire hands. What's your opinion of the current SETI efforts that are taking place now to detect signals from civilizations? Well, it's happening more and more, and more people are getting involved with bigger and bigger telescopes. and. It's very encouraging, I think. I saw an interview with uh, Steve Shostak, is that how you pronounce his name? Yes. And he was of the opinion that that we would discover something definitive, he thought, within 20 years. Do you share that opinion? I don't think I would make any prediction like that. We always hope, but who, who knows? Well, thank you very much. This is excellent. I hope that uh, I will get a chance to see the documentary and see you. Thank you. Good. It's good to talk to you. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.